Amen. Well, that's three out of three services. I wasn't ready to finish singing those songs. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the living hope that is ours in Christ Jesus. And so in this moment, as we open up your living word, give us grace to hear the word of God clearly, accurately. May what we proclaim in this moment about Jesus be true of him and worthy of him. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you may be seated, and if you've got a Bible, I want you to join me in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. Uh, One of the reasons that we study through the Scripture verse by verse is so what we say about and from Mark 9, we'll know together where we're coming from in light of Mark chapter 8. To just say a really simple and clear statement, Mark 9 has a lot to do with Mark 8, and by the way, Mark 9 has a whole lot to do with Mark 10, and on to the crucifixion, death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ as well. So, uh, just quick reminder, in Mark 8, where we've been studying, a word was used that up to this point in Mark's gospel has not been used. It's a word that's very familiar to you and to me as a follower of Jesus Christ, and that word is... If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his, what does the scripture say? Cross. Cross. First time that word is used in the gospel of Mark. Now in that time and place, as Jesus, and you remember Mark 8, he's talking to the crowds, talking to a large group of people, and that crowd size, by the way, as we get nearer and nearer the cross, what's going to happen to the crowd size? It's going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. I can't prove this, but I think... When Jesus used that word, the crowd would have responded this way. (gasps) Like, what? To follow you means to take up the cross because for them, they understood what a cross was. They they lived under the reality of Roman rule. They knew that a cross meant surrender. The only people who got nailed to crosses were those who had been defeated. And they got the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and zealots running around saying, hey, we'll lead you to victory, not to defeat. And they also knew well enough to know that a cross meant humiliation. I mean, again, Romans had all sorts of ways of putting people to death, the sword, by stoning, and so on. Why did they use crucifixion? To humiliate people. And then a cross means suffering. And ultimately, a cross means death. And Jesus stands before them and says, this is the way to actually live. So let me use those four words again. We studied this last week. Taking up the cross is an act of surrender. Taking up the cross is an act of humiliation. Taking up the cross is an act of suffering. And taking up the cross is an act of death. And if you, as a human being, were to list the four things that you most want to avoid in life, what would they be? Surrender, humiliation, suffering, and death. It is not our nature to take up a cross. That has to come with the new nature, right? And Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you must take up the cross. And then we step into Mark 9. So we get this uh, straight. The cross always precedes the glory. So we see here in Mark 9, we're going to walk up the Mount of Transfiguration together as we study. And so Jesus uh, speaking in Mark 9. Hey, let's stand together. I know you just probably got comfortable, but uh, I think it honors the Lord and his word. It's just by way of doing something physically that uh, is a posture of our heart. That uh, we, we trust in the sufficiency of the scriptures as a church family. So Mark 9 verse 1. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. That's an interesting thing for someone to say when they say, we're going to take up a cross. 
Can he take up a cross and live a life of power? Well, uh, I believe the following scene is a fulfillment of those very words. As after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. A cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Well, you may be seated, and may the Lord bless the reading and teaching of his word. The word transfigured used there in verse number two uh, is a word that describes something on the outs or something on the inside showing up on the outside. So this is a word that's only used of Jesus because this is a word that can only be used of Jesus. If where you were seated right now, what's really true of you on the inside showed up on the outside, what would that look like? It wouldn't look like your clothes becoming radiant and you standing there in glory and power. If what was really true of us on the inside showed up on the outside, it wouldn't look glorious. It would look monstrous, quite frankly, right? What, what man, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And the only person who's ever walked on planet Earth who could have what's on the inside show up on the outside and it'd be glorious is Jesus. He may not be glamorous, but he is glorious. And for a moment, for a moment, Peter, James, and John, and Elijah, and Moses on that mountain can see here on the outside of Jesus what is true of him on the inside. And the word that I want to use as the title of the sermon is the radiance of Christ. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Jesus is the only one who, when you get to know him more and more, he does not diminish in radiance. He actually gets more and more and more radiant and more and more glorious and more and more beautiful. We know that this is not, by and large, the way Jesus in the incarnation walked around planet earth. In fact, uh, Isaiah says the very opposite in his prophecy of the Messiah. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Notice what he's saying. At first glance, this Christ who's going to come, when you look at him, it's no form, no, no majesty. Now, human beings, we tend to be really impressed with people who have form and majesty. But Jesus, when he steps on the earth and in the incarnation, he doesn't look glorious. And in fact, Isaiah, continuing to prophesy, says he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So here's my aim as we study the scripture, is when you walk out the door this morning, that you will esteem him more than you did when you walked in. In order to do that, to accomplish that, we want to talk about his radiance and how from Mark 9 we can see the radiance of, of Christ. Transfigured before us, let's start here, uh, the radiance of Christ can be seen in his humble 
service. So let's start there, humble service. Let's think of all the things that Jesus does that you might take a second glance at them if he were to do them as he appears on the Mount of Transfiguration. For example, radiant white clothes. You can think of them in this way, washing the disciples' feet. That seems a little jarring, doesn't it? Or radiant in glory and power as he's uh, reaching out to the leper, welcoming in the prostitute, right? Going after the outcast and the uninvited. And to make the obvious point, this is who he is, amen? And we see his radiance in his humble service. Now, if we were to ever enter the presence of God in and of ourselves, the result is, here's what happens to them. They were terrified. Now, angels terrify humans anytime they show up in the scriptures. Can you imagine the king and the maker of the angels as they see him? They are terrified. To see the radiance of Jesus, that this is who he is, and yet think of how he serves. Peter and James and John see the radiance of Christ displayed on this mountain, and it would have had to have been true that they could not have possibly ever thought that this one would suffer. Make other people suffer? Oh, sure. But how is power actually used by Jesus in the world? Here's, what, here's one of the many things that I love about Jesus. Anyone else who accumulates or acquires power, how do they use that power? They use it ultimately for themselves. But Jesus, who really has all power, he leverages it not to destroy others, but in order to rescue and save others. Isaiah will prophesy he's wounded for our transgressions. I mean, can't you imagine Peter and James and John as they see this one who's terrifying them? It's impossible that this one could ever be wounded, crushed for our iniquities. How could this one ever be crushed? Well, the only way that could ever happen is if he's willing to serve. I've already said he's serving willingly. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Now, let's put them together. If you're going to come after him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And whatever measure it is possible in your life that you have power, that you have influence, that you have leverage, how do you use it? Now, if we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to live as he does. And his whole life is a life of humble service. He warns his, his disciples, right? It's not going to be like you as it is among the Romans. The Romans, the greatest among them, is the one who gets everybody else to serve. The greatest among you. The greatest among you is the one who serves. The radiance of Jesus is seen in his humble service. Are you a servant? When you enter a room, are you there to serve others and to put them first? I'm so thankful to live in the United States of America and to celebrate this weekend that all men are created equal. But you know the scripture says that you're to consider other people as more significant than yourself. All the radiance of Jesus seen in his humble service. Second, I want you to see from this passage that the radiance of Jesus is seen in his patience towards us. His patience towards us. Remember from last week, the Apostle Paul, his testimony is, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience towards me. 
And I'm picking up this point from Mark chapter 9, verse 2. After six days, Jesus took with him who? Peter. Remember Peter? A few verses up, Mark 8, verse 33. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Jesus corrects Peter, but he doesn't discard Peter. Peter had made a mistake, and he'd been in error, but Jesus doesn't look at him and say, man, we're done. In fact, uh, the life of Peter displays, like Paul's does, like anyone born again, the perfect patience of our Lord. Are you a patient person? Anybody lose their patience this past week? Any scene come to mind? I'm a parent of four children, so I just want to testify before my church family I'm not sure I get through a day. I'm not sure I get through an afternoon, a morning without displaying something far less than perfect patience. But your Heavenly Father's not that way. I think uh, uh, the, the, the Sabbath day, the day of rest, is a day we should focus on the, on the Lord. So let me give you this uh, homework assignment, so to speak. Don't think of it that way. It's, it's a blessing. Think about how the Lord has displayed patience to you. So in the same way that I don't think anybody would be able to stand behind the microphone today and say, I've not lost patience this week. Likewise, no one would be able to say, the Lord has run out of patience with me today. Get behind me, Satan. Notice he doesn't say get behind me, Peter. He's not done with Peter. But he does love Peter enough to say there's some satanic influence in you that has to go. Well, 4th of July weekend, maybe an example from American history would be helpful on this point. July the 11th, 1804, something went down in Weehawken, New Jersey. Anybody know what happened? July 11th, 1804 in Weehawken, New Jersey. Two men uh, got together at 7 a.m. in the morning, and they arrived planning to have a duel. It was Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton. And things had been building for a while leading up to July the 11th. For years and years, and in many ways, through writing and through speeches and through just talking to acquaintances and friends, Alexander Hamilton had let it be known that he believed Aaron Burr was the most dangerous thing and most dangerous person a republic can face. And he warned and warned and warned about how dangerous Aaron Burr was, and his criticism was essentially this, Aaron Burr will say and do whatever he has to do in order to acquire power for himself. Aaron Burr wants to be the president, so he'll make a stand on issues on the basis of how many votes that I can get. And then in this time, 1804, in particular, was running to be governor of New York. And so Alexander Hamilton began to warn everybody, you got to watch out for Burr, you got to watch out for Burr. He doesn't stand for anything. He's a chameleon in essence. He'll do whatever he has to do in order to acquire power, and that's very dangerous for a Republic. And in particular, Alexander Hamilton used a word to describe Aaron Burr. And when Burr heard this, he said, either retract that statement or we're going to duel. Does anybody know what word he used to describe Aaron Burr? He called him despicable. That was the word that was used. And Aaron Burr said, you either take that back or meet me in Weehawken, New Jersey. And Alexander Hamilton wouldn't take it back. Do you know why he said he wouldn't take it back? He said, because it's true is despicable and he is dangerous and so july 11th 1804 
They get together. Hamilton's 49 years old, Burr's 48, been rivals for a little while. Now, we don't know all the details because duels were illegal in that time, and the seconds to peop- uh, each would bring another man with them, and when it came time to duel, they turned their backs so that they weren't witnesses. Later generations would call this plausible deniability. But evidence suggests that Hamilton showed up. Yes, I will stand and I will have my weapon, but I'm going to fire over his head. I'm not planning to shoot Aaron Burr. But Aaron Burr didn't come with that plan. Now there's some suggestions that uh, Burr just wanted to wound him, but that's not what happened. So Alexander Hamilton, as best we understand it, took his aim and fired far above. In fact, hit a tree behind Aaron Burr, and then Aaron Burr fired, and four inches above Hamilton's hip, he hit him, bounced off some ribs, went through his liver, and Hamilton knew immediately that his wound was mortal, and he died the following afternoon. Now at Calvary, there is a duel that takes place, and it is between the justice of God and the mercy of God, because God has said some things about us that he will not recant. He said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He said, you're an idolater. You put things in my place as God that don't belong there. You're spiritually dead. You're hard-hearted. You're stubborn. And why will God not recount these things? Recant these things, rather. Because they're true. Because they're true. But God also says that he loves us. He gives us truth and grace to see, well, despicable would be putting it mildly, wouldn't it? And so the punishment for sin and against sin will come because God's not going to stop being God. He's not going to stop being holy. He's not going to stop being righteous. But when the punishment comes, what's also true is that Jesus, who's God come in the flesh, is willing to take it. He says, I'll stand in the place. God comes not by destroying us. He responds by coming among us. And he responds by taking the punishment on himself. And in doing so, does he not display the perfect patience of our God? Is this how you love and treat your enemies? Would you rather duel them or die for them, right? That's another way of asking, are you really following him? The radiance of Jesus is is seen in his patience towards us. Now, he does strongly correct Peter. We live in a generation that suggests if you really love somebody, that means you will just agree with them. And that's not love. Love is what Jesus does with Peter right here. Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Jesus is lovingly correcting Peter. Is that, Peter, you're selling yourself so short for what you could really have. I'm offering you so much more. Those who enter the kingdom of God will not regret leaving the kingdom of the world. Can I just tell you that? Heaven is not going to be full of people who have a lot of regrets. So the radiance of Jesus is seen as his patience. Let his treatment of Peter inform how he treats you. Yes! Yes, he will strongly correct you. As a matter of fact, if you give me the grace to say this to you, if it's been a little while since God has strongly corrected you, you've probably not really been following him. Can y'all receive that all right? 
I mean, if you've gone some weeks and months and haven't received some strong correction from the Lord about some habits, about some thoughts, about some ways of living, about some ways of speaking, about some idolatry in your life, right? You might be following as a fan of Jesus, as we've talked to in recent days, but not really as a follower. And then the radiance of Jesus, the radiance of Jesus is seen in his unmatched power. It's the word Jesus uses. He says, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of God, or I'm sorry, the kingdom of God, after it has come with power. Power. Remember last week when Jesus was teaching the crowds, we made the observation that there were by and large four groups of people who were trying to get followers in those days. They were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the Zealots. And they all had much different philosophies of life. The Pharisees, by and large, were saying, we need to go back to the way things used to be. The Sadducees were saying, well, we might not discard all the law of God, but we want to update some things on the basis of some Roman and uh, Greek philosophies. And then the Zealots were saying, the whole thing needs to come down. We're going to go against. So you have a group saying, we're going to go back. We're going to go forward. We're going to go against. And then the Essenes said the whole thing's corrupt, we're just going to go away. We're going to go live in some caves and copy some scripture. That's what we're going to do. Let me ask this. As each of those groups acquired power, that's our word here, what do you believe they would do with that power? Well, the Pharisees are not out to bless the Essenes, the Zealots, and the Scribes in whatever combination you would want to work in that way. But Jesus is the one who really has power. Does this not make him more radiant to you? He has power, and yet he's going to become weak so that the powerless can be restored. The transfiguration is a little bit like a movie trailer. You know what a movie trailer is, right? You had a two-hour movie, and it kind of shrinks it down to two minutes or so, and just some, there's a, there's a moment coming, y'all, when What's true of the Mount of Transfiguration is going to be true on the whole earth. And when Christ comes back, there's not going to be some competition over who's the most powerful. It's going to be pretty obvious. And it's going to happen like that. And all the competitions for power in that moment are going to be over. If you're a follower of his, that's already been resolved. He's got the power. It's a glimpse of what is to come. Notice at the end of Mark 8, Jesus makes that prediction. Whoever's ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Paul Tripp is one of my favorite authors, and uh, he's got a book called All, A-W-E. If you've not read it, it's my book recommendation of the week. But he gives this illustration. He says, I remember taking my youngest son to one of the national art galleries in Washington, D.C. As we made our approach, I was so excited about what we were going to see. He was decidedly unexcited. But I knew once we were inside, he would have his mind blown and thank me for what I had done for him that day. As it turned out, his mind wasn't blown. It wasn't even activated. I saw things of such stunning beauty that brought me to the edge of tears. He yawned, moaned, and complained his way through the art gallery. With every new gallery, I was enthralled 
But each time we walked into a new space, he begged me to leave. He was surrounded by glory, but he saw none of it. He stood in the middle of wonders, but he was bored out of his mind. His eyes worked well, but his heart was stone blind. He saw everything, but he saw nothing. Isn't it amazing what often captivates us and what can bore us? Well, we're going to return in the next Sunday to the same scene. But one of the most captivating things about Jesus that I see in Mark 9 happens here in verse 14. When they came to the disciples, this is after they walked down. We'll, uh, we'll look at verse 9. As they were coming down the mountain, don't you wish sometimes in life that you could just stay up on the mountain? Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that just be a wonderful way to live? Remember, it's a trailer. That is how you're going to live. That is. But he comes down the mountain, and when they come to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And I read that, and I have to think to myself, was there anything? I don't believe there was, but was there anything in Jesus as he walked down and saw this going on that was just like, I'm just, I'm just going to head back up, y'all. I'm done. I'm going back up, Moses and Elijah. I'm going back to the Father to step into this scribes arguing what are they arguing about the law and the prophets who is jesus just on the mountain with mr law mr prophet like we're done i'm done with y'all humble service perfect patience and real power it's actual real power to step back into this the real world right this is where we live What we're about today is not detached from what you've got to do tomorrow or Tuesday afternoon or whatever it is. It's not detached from family. It's not detached from your physical health. It's not detached from raising children. It's not detached from uh, marriage. It's not detached from your job. It has everything to do with all of it. You step back into the real world, and we'll get to what he does at that moment. But ultimately, where is he going to keep going? He's going to go to a different mountain, isn't he? He's going to go to a different mountain. And what I love about Jesus, as it's revealed here in this, is uh, of all the things that are hard to get your mind around when you think about Jesus, radiant and powerful, is that picture that Jesus nailed to the cross. It's like it doesn't fit at all, does it? But that's his radiance displayed. Now, can you imagine Peter coming alongside Mark 9 Jesus like he did in Mark 8. Remember him in Mark 8? He comes over to Jesus. After Jesus has said that he's going to the east, Mark 8, 31. Some son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I don't imagine Peter would have stood on the Mount of Transfiguration with glorious Jesus and come alongside and said, I'm going to rebuke him, correct him. He he doesn't quite know what he's talking about. But can you see it's the same Jesus? It is Jesus. What's more stunning is that Mount Transfiguration Jesus is going to be disfigured Jesus on Mount Calvary. And why is he going to do that? It's called love, friends, right? Only thing that will sustain you in the midst of humiliation and suffering, sacrifice, and surrender and death is love. 
I want to share with you something that was written by somebody who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration later on in his life. I just find this stunning. So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. This is one of the many things that when you study the Bible and you think about it, at first glance, you're like, no, that couldn't be. But then the more you think about it, you say, oh, that really is how it is, isn't it? So Peter is going to reference the Mount of Transfiguration, and I want you to see what he says. And maybe you'll enter this week with this thought in mind. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? You don't have to, you don't have to color up the gospel. You, you don't have to try to come up with some witty way to share the gospel. Do you know who does develop cleverly devised myths? The devil does, right? The world, the flesh, and the devil. Always making promises that don't have any payoff. Well, Peter says that's not what we've done. He says, for when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic mountain, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. What's he referring back to? Mount of Transfiguration, right? I want you to see what he says. He, he doesn't say, for example, and man, it would have been awesome if you had been there. Oh, if you could have only seen what we saw, you'd endure suffering. That's what 2 Peter's about, by the way, is this letter Peter's writing to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ on how to bear up under uncertain times in the midst of you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, kind of sounding familiar, right, and, and a hardship that may come. But he doesn't say, man, if you'd have been there at the Mount of Transfiguration, look what he says. We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as a, to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So just a couple of real brief observations from what Peter is, uh, is saying. First of all, my inclination is to think if I could have been there, you know, if I could have been there on the Mount of Transfiguration, if I could have seen what Peter saw I would live a life of enduring faith in Jesus. But Peter just said that's not true. In fact, he says you have something more sure, the prophetic word. Now, I've shared each uh, service, and, I, and so I'm not sure I have this right, but I've studied and I've looked, and I can't find any prophecy in the Old Testament about the transfiguration. I'm not saying it's not there in some measure, and I haven't just have, but there's no prophecies about the Mount of Transfiguration. But there are a lot of prophecies about Calvary, Mount Calvary. He's going to suffer. He's going to be crushed. He's going to bear our sins in our place. And Peter is saying, this is more sure, the prophetic word. So just real quick, you remember uh, Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was unveiled before them and what their disposition was? Now, just for a moment, I want you to compare and contrast their disposition in that moment with your disposition when you do this. We have the prophetic word, and you open it up. What happens? You like uh, Paul Tripp's son in the art gallery, yawning, 
through glorious word as a dawn rising in your heart. Peter said, if you've got this, it's better than being there. As a matter of fact, I find this, I guess I would call it peculiar. Paul's very similar in this. We would think that Paul, all through his letters, would talk about the Damascus Road experience. Like, you would think if he's going to write the church at Ephesus and the churches in Galatia and Thessalonica, he'd just refer again and again and again to that moment when he saw. Now, he does make some references to it. If you'll go back and look, it's often when someone directly asks him about it. But when he writes to Corinth, for example, he doesn't say, I purpose to know nothing among you except Christ as he was revealed on the road to Damascus. It's not what he says. What does he say? I purpose to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. So from the whole counsel of God, what I take that to mean is if you behold the lamb slain for sin, that is the radiance of Christ. It wouldn't have been better if you'd have been able to be there and see the Mount of Transfiguration. And here's the distinction. After six days, he took with him Peter and James and John. When he gets to the Mount Calvary, he doesn't take them with him, does he? He goes up that mountain, how? alone. Nobody else is coming. He who knew no sin became sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in conclusion, here's the most, one of the most radiant Jesus thoughts I can have. In the same way that we'd say, Mark 8, Peter, who wants to sidle up beside Jesus, put his arm around him and say, uh, and rebuke him. He'd say, if Jesus looks like he does in Mark 9, he would never do that. In the same way, can you see, that transfigured, glorious Jesus comes alongside you. Comes alongside you. He says, I'm with you. I'm for you. And goes to Calvary in your place. I praise God that Jesus is willing to come alongside of us. And I want to obey the scripture where Peter says, y'all listen, you will do well if you pay attention to the prophetic word. It is a light shining in the darkness. In a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing to Jesus the song, uh, King of Kings. That's what we're going to sing together. And what I want you to do in these few moments is to set your heart and mind upon the king, the one who really has power, but he took on the form of a servant. No former majesty that we should look upon him. And then he comes demonstrating patience to Peter and goes up on the mountain of <laughs> transfiguration and gives him a little trailer, a little glimpse. This is who I really am. And it's that Jesus who goes and suffers and dies and will rise again. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray for us. Father, on the authority of the apostles, I want to confess something's true that in and of myself, I, I, I might not believe is true. We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. So God, I'm praying for grace for my life, for my church.
We live in an age of great distraction. So many things we can pay attention to. But I ask for grace that what we would pay attention to was we would set our minds on Christ. Lord, thank you that you give correction to those of us who need it. And Lord, I need it. But I thank you in giving us correction, you're not discarding us. We see Peter come up on the mountain. And if the transfiguration is a picture of what is to come, and I believe it is, Lord, nobody gets to be in your presence apart from your mercy and grace. Thank you that Christ is willing to accomplish for us what our attempts to understand and obey the law and the prophets could not. Lord, we have a righteousness not of our own, but one we're clothed in the spotless robes of Jesus and in his righteousness. Thank you that, the, that Jesus is the king of kings and he's the one with real power. May he be exalted among us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.